0: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons.
4: The Bickersons have retired. As usual, Mrs. Bickerson tosses restlessly while her husband, John, insomniac extraordinary, provides this audible testimony of his constant wakefulness. Let's listen.
0: Oh, for the love of heaven, what is he doing? John. John! John! Hmm? What's the matter with you? Hmm? You are making the most frightful noises. What's the matter?
4: What's the matter, Blanche?
0: Are you in pain?
4: I've got a terrible headache. Haven't slept a wink.
0: You've been sleeping like a felled ox. Headaches.
4: Head aches.
0: You wouldn't have such a headache if you didn't make so many cocktails before dinner. Why do you do that, John?
4: Always do it. Why? No good to eat on an empty stomach. Put out the lights,
0: John. The lights are out. How would you know anyway with that sleep shade on?
4: Well, something's flashing in my head. Ow!
0: Take an aspirin.
4: Okay. Hmm. Feel better already.
0: How can you chew those things like that? Wash it down with something.
4: All right. Ah.
0: John Bickerson, you washed it down with bourbon. You
4: lied to me. You got the lights on.
0: Yes, I'm going to keep them on. Sit up. I want to talk to you.
4: Please, Blanche, I can't sit up. My head will fall off. Why do you always have to talk in the middle of the night?
0: When else can I talk to you? You come home for dinner and bury your head in the paper. Never a word out of you. And you tell me you've got to go to bed early because you have insomnia.
4: Well, I have. It takes me hours to fall asleep.
0: It took you all of 30 seconds tonight.
4: Well, this was a good night. Good night.
0: John. Mm. John. Mm. I went over to see the Marvins' new baby this afternoon. It's a beautiful child. Do you know their first one is over a year old? I hope so. He's been walking since he was eight months.
4: He must be awful tired.
0: I am, too. Children are such a blessing. Mm. It's wonderful to watch them grow up. You'd be surprised how many childless couples are adopting children.
4: Yeah, I'd better have another aspirin. Boy, have I got a headache. Mm. John? Mm?
0: Don't you miss the patter of tiny feet around the house?
4: No, I don't, Blanche. Children are wonderful, all right, but you have to be able to afford them. All this talk of adopting. What the devil is that?
0: What's what?
4: That. Put the lights on. John. Blanche, don't tell me that you went out and...
0: It's only a dog, silly. A a
4: dog? What do we need dogs for? I got a little puppy. Where's the aspirin? What did you get a dog for?
0: Now, don't get hysterical.
4: Where is the little beast? I can hear it, but I can't see it.
0: He's right there, in the bureau. I've got him in your shirt drawer.
4: You put him in there with my shirts.
0: He won't suffocate. The drawer's open.
4: Blanche, you know I'm allergic to dog hair. It gives me sinus trouble. Where's the aspirin?
0: You are just a big hypochondriac. You imagine those allergies like you do your insomnia.
4: I tell you, I'm allergic to dogs. They make me... make me... (coughs) Get rid of that thing. He'll whine all night and keep me awake.
0: The man said he'll keep quiet if you give him one of those worm pills.
4: Well, where are they?
0: On the night table by your bed. How do you give a bed? Where? They're on the night table by your bed.
4: There's nothing here except the aspirins.
0: The aspirins are in the medicine cabinet. How can they be in the... Me- Blanche! What have I been eating? No wonder
4: my headache won't go away. Why do you do these things to me? Send for a doctor.
0: Don't carry on so. If they're good for a dog, they won't hurt you. Go to sleep.
4: Go to sleep, she tells me. Here I am dying from dog poisoning. My my head is splitting. She knows I'm allergic to dogs. Hides the aspirin. It makes, I don't know, get up so early, never get another wink of sleep as as long as... <clears throat>
0: John, John, mm-hmm. gesundheit. Thanks. I can see how much sleep I'm going to get tonight. We'll have to get rid of the puppy.
4: Now you're talking.
0: I want you to take him down to the dog pound.
4: Okay, I'll do it on my way to work.
0: You go in the opposite direction.
4: Well, I'll go out of my way.
0: You say it, but you won't do it. You better take him now. What? Go on, get up. Take the puppy to the dog pound. Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's after two in the morning. They're open all night. Go on, get up and take him.
4: Well, I've never heard of such a thing. You know I went to bed with a splitting headache and had to take a dozen worm pills to fall asleep.
0: You'd take the dog to the pound quick enough if Gloria Gooseby asked you to. How do you
4: always manage to work the conversation around a Gloria Gooseby?
0: Well, if you wouldn't shout so much, maybe the puppy would be able to sleep.
4: Ah, What's the use? Good night.
0: I thought it would be nice to have a little dog, especially when we move into our new apartment.
4: Still have a year to go on this one.
0: Our lease expired on Friday.
4: I renewed it yesterday.
0: I canceled it this morning. Amos <laughs> is raffling off the apartment for me.
4: That's a good idea. Am- Amos is what?
0: Amos sold 500 tickets at $2 apiece, and the winner moves into our apartment tomorrow.
4: Oh, Blanche, no. I, I don't believe it. We'll be on the street.
0: Amos said he'll find us a new place in a jiffy.
4: Jiffy? Haven't you heard there's a housing shortage? Where would he find a place?
0: Well, I bought a ticket myself. It's a wonderful chance. Lovely three-room apartment, large kitchen, big closets. It's worth $2, and we might get it. Get it? We've got it now. I know. But even if we didn't win, we'd get the $1,000 Amos collected for the rest of the tickets.
4: Look, Blanche, I gave the landlord a $1,200 bonus to renew the lease. So now I'm out $200 and I've got no place to live.
0: Sounds like pretty poor business to me. Why do you make such deals?
4: Now look, Blanche... The
0: trouble with you, John, is that you are too conservative.
4: Look, Blanche...
0: If you'd pick up some of the deals that Amos has, we might be able to live as nicely as he does. Blanche... He's been living at the Biltmore Hotel for a year.
4: He sleeps on a billiard table. Look out. Where's my slippers?
0: What are you going to do?
4: Let me get to that phone. I'll show... Ow!
0: Ooh! Ooh! Put on the lights! The lights are on. Open your eyes.
4: Oh. Here's here's the phone. I know it's going to ring, and I want to be ready when it does. Hello? Excuse me. Drop dead. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That wasn't Amos. Amos.
1: I'll
4: get it. I'll get it. Amos! Hi, Jacko. What are you doing up this time of night? Packing, Amos. We're moving, haven't you heard? Why aren't you going to invite me in? I'd like to look the place over. You mean... Yep. I won the raffle. Darndest luck I ever saw. Who drew the ticket, Amos? Fair and square. I wouldn't take a chance having some phony draw it, so I drew it myself. What a coincidence. Get out of here.
5: What's the matter with you, Jacko? You got a thousand dollars coming. And if you're worried about a place to live... I'll rent you the garage. You haven't got a car anymore, you know.
4: Get out of here before I hit you with a cleaver. Okay, Jacko, you don't have to get sore. You better give the money back to people you sold tickets to or you'll have a lot of explaining to do.
3: Not me, brother. You'll have to do the explaining. I'll tell them you won. Goodnight, Jacko.
4: That guy will wind up on a chain gang as sure as...
0: Was it Amos who won?
4: I did. Now, at last, I can go to sleep in my own bed without worrying.
0: No, you can't, dear. The dog's in there.
4: But, oh, nuts. I'll sleep in the garage.
0: Good night, John.
1: From the Tom's Oh, and yeah.
4: hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is. Uh, A uh, contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, among other uh, publications, and uh, the author of five previous books of award-winning nonfiction. His new book takes a look at his brother's story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches, in uh, a book called The Mind and the Moon by Daniel Bergner, who joins me by phone. Uh, Daniel, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Um, Daniel, what turned your attention to mental health for uh, for this book?
2: Right. So in some ways, it's just where we are right now. It's so central in our society now, but in some ways, very personal. So when my brother and I were in our early 20s, he was diagnosed as bipolar, spent time, a couple times on locked wards, uh, heavily medicated, and he and our parents were told that if he didn't stay on that medication, he was likely to commit suicide. It's a very dire prognosis, and yet he is and was a musician. The medication's really didn't allow him to play the piano as he wanted and needed to. And so after several years, he took himself off medication. And with some bumps, which we need to come back to, he's really led a flourishing life ever since. And so that just raised all kinds of questions, which we decided to return to about the assumptions we make about psychiatric challenges all of our psyches and just whether this idea that we can medicate our way to mental health and whether we need to medicate our way to mental health is really you know a fundamental truth or something that is true some of the time but very much not true all of the time
4: you know i'm um i'm curious because a, a lot of people are thinking about mental health in the wake of uh, you know a couple of years of lockdowns and quarantines and so on because of COVID-19 and the pandemic and I, I, I this is going to sound a little impertinent but I, I had closed my studio moved all my stuff home uh, to start doing my show from home about 6 weeks before <laughs> before the pandemic became widely known and uh, things started shutting down so every day I walked down the hall to my office to do my show and it was what I was going to be doing anyway so I didn't feel as inconvenienced as some people who all of a sudden found themselves forced into working from home or staying home full-time but I wonder about people who've experienced lockdown um, the way your brother had on a couple of occasions if it would have been for them uh, quarantining a little bit like it was for me it didn't seem to put me out it didn't seem that much different than the way I was already planning to live my life
2: You know, that is a really fascinating question. I just want to back up a little bit just to acknowledge how much pressure COVID put on our, speaking about our society, uh, mental health. And then just to back up to that time when my brother was on ward. So around 1980 or so, we began to be told that, Our brains were like any other organ. We could treat them like any other organ. And thus, we psychiatry held out this hope that with these sets of medications, whether for depression or bipolar or for psychosis, that these, our challenges could be cured. It really hasn't proved to be true. So one of the fascinating things for me as I was working on this book, because it's both personal, it's about my brother, it's about two other people and their, their journeys, but it's also about science. And the scientists who've devoted the last 40, 50 years to the search for the best pharmaceuticals were saying, we really haven't made any progress in half a century. And that's another aspect that just led me to start thinking about a reassessment. Yeah, now, Daniel, it, doesn't that suggest
4: that maybe the search for pharmaceuticals is the wrong path altogether? I think it may. More about mental health issues with journalist Daniel Bergner, straight ahead.
1: From the Thunder Show.
2: now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
1: I'm
6: Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive, and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
2: Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic
7: and moving our country forward. It's up to you.
4: Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues.
6: And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
4: More about mental health issues with journalist Daniel Bergner straight ahead.
2: I wanted to come back to your question about isolation. And one of the people who drives, look forward, so there's my brother, and then there's this woman, Caroline, who's really had every, every trouble, extreme challenge that you can imagine. I mean, hallucinations, auditory, hearing voices, very, very isolated and difficult life, but found that in all kinds of ways, by reducing that isolation and by countering the feelings of extreme difference through, in her case, taking part in and then starting a movement called the Hearing Voices Movement, where people actually gather together and share rather than try to suppress their difference, that she was really able to help people connect and by connecting sort of reduce all the just the pressures, the loneliness, the fears, et cetera. And I, she just serves to me, is a kind of beacon. I hope readers of the book will feel the same way.
4: What do you mean by the, uh, the title, The Mind and the Moon? What, what role does the moon <laughs> play in all of
2: this? I'm very glad you asked. So back in the early 60s, President Kennedy promised us we would get to the moon we did, quite quickly. And that, and that he gave a speech just a few weeks before his assassination, that American science would lead us to the far reaches of the mind, and we would cure mental illness. That hasn't happened. So one of the questions I ask is why. and I, It's because the brain and the mind are not anywhere near the same thing. The brain is this physical thing. It's an organ. But as one of my favorite neuroscientists taught me, and this is, again, a man who's devoted his life to researching the brain, any other organ in the body, take the heart. You can look at its cells, and they're doing what the organ does. We can look at heart cells, and they're pumping. Of course, brain cells, neurons, are not thinking. And his point was the brain is so much more than the sum of its parts, the mind really is so much more than the brain, that in a sense, we can't get there. We can't reach it. It's further away than the moon. And it may be time to start thinking in alternative ways about our mental health because of that brain-mind difference.
4: It's interesting that you mention uh, John Kennedy in his remarks about mental health, because it was personal for him, too.
2: Very. Uh, His sister had been lobotomized and then relegated to an institution where for a long while she was hidden away and mostly unvisited, even by the family. So it was very personal. He was very driven. Science has been very driven for half a century to find the sources of mental illness in our brains and address them in that physical way. I guess the question is, are there other ways? And I want to be careful here because, you know, I'm a very rational person and a journalist. But the book ever so slowly does go to spiritual places led there by scientists who are as hardcore as you can get in the science realm. I mean, looking at molecular mechanisms within brain cells. But on the other hand, saying, should we be thinking in another way? Is this like fixing a broken leg? It's not. Do we need to place ourselves Within something larger, whether we think of that in conventional religious terms or in terms of the cosmos or just in terms of what we loosely call spirit, do we need to place ourselves within something larger and connect to each other at, in deeper ways as a way to mitigate, to lessen the let's just say the pain that we all live with? And I use that, you know, we pronoun very purposely, because I think there's so much, even with someone like Caroline, whose condition is so extreme, uh, there's so much that we all share, and it's a question of sort of how we think about that, or as one scientist said, how we hold these challenges as opposed to trying to suppress them.
4: Yeah, let me, let me ask you something from the practical side of all this. I, there was a, a scene in a favorite television show of mine, a guy's talking to a therapist, and he says, Doc, am I crazy? And the therapist says, do you think you're crazy? And he says, how would I know? <laughs> and, and it's a funny moment and all that, but in real life, how would he know? Can, yeah. can people with mental issues self-diagnose?
2: I would say not only can they self-diagnose, if that's the way we want to think about it, but they can also, much more than we're giving people credit for, chart their own paths toward health. So at one extreme, conventional psychiatry would say that someone like my brother in the condition he was in when we were in our early 20s, or someone like Caroline, they're not capable of insight into their own condition so we the psychiatric profession must come in and tell them tell their families what's necessary i just that just doesn't generally match up with four years of reporting that i've done for this book people are much more even people diagnosed with severe psychiatric conditions, much more coherent than we give them credit for. So Caroline, again, she would fit the criteria for all kinds of severe diagnoses. Just yesterday, you know, I was emailing with her about Herman Melville. And this is, yes, in answer to your question, people are much more capable of contributing to and even guiding their own uh, treatment and and that's a, a profound thing to watch. It's a profound lesson, I think, for all of us. So
4: people around people with um, various uh, types of of mental illness or issues, uh, family members, spouses, uh, parents, children, etc. Um, what what is their role in assisting a person toward um, recovery, or or at the very least um, treatment and management? Right.
2: So this is a big part of the book because it's a big big part of my brother's story. Um, I think families reflexively and totally understandably, are in fear and they want to control the situation. They want to prevent the worst. Our parents were so afraid that my brother would take his own life. But what happens in trying desperately to control the situation is that you may lose connection. And one of the lessons of the book is stay connected. Listen. Take that extra breath. Don't try to leap in and fix it. Caroline's motto as she leads this movement is, when I'm controlling, I'm not connecting. I think it's something, you know, we can all, whether we're listening to a friend or a family member, we can all learn from.
4: You know, you've mentioned the risk of suicide a couple of times, Daniel, and that makes me wonder because most of us um, that that haven't experienced suicide in a in a really up close way um, have this this notion that suicide that there's really two causes of suicide: depression or pain. Um, what? What is the impulse to
2: end a life? Can I turn that question around? It's a really good question. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I, I
4: didn't ask it very well, Daniel, but no, but no, I no. think you know what yeah. I'm getting at.
2: You asked it perfectly, and again, I'm going to refer to Caroline who's gone from a real sufferer of extreme psychiatric illness to a leader in a transformative movement, helping us to think in new ways. So one of the two types of groups that she leads and that she sees around the country and that she's talking to psychiatric hospitals about is an alternative approach to guarding against suicide. So the typical approach when it, If I get on the phone with a suicide hotline and I say certain things, there's going to be a police car or an ambulance at my door. I'm going to go, whether voluntarily or not, to the hospital. And that's going to prevent suicide for a couple weeks while I'm at the hospital, but there's very little evidence that it's going to help thereafter. Caroline's approach is no. Let's get in a room. Let's let people say anything they need to say with the promise that no one will be called, no matter what, no ambulance, no police. And the trust is that by sharing, by making people feel listened to and deeply understood, that that is going to reduce the risk significantly. It does not always work. It is not a guarantee. Nothing is a guarantee against that level of pain. But it really makes sense. Again, it's this theme of connection. And back to your question, pain, depression, plus, I'd say, isolation, that feeling that one has no way out and that no one is there, that we are walled off. Those may be the sources, and her vision, which is so simple but so radical, is to remove that isolation and replace it with connection. I... I, I... I guess I'm, I'm curious
4: about the people who are suffering depression and isolation. It, you know, it's when someone has physical pain and little, if anything, can be done to mitigate that pain, there's, there's a certain acceptance and understanding why they might want to end their life. But we don't have that, that same... Uh, ability to quantify the pain that people are in that are suffering mental issues. Do you know what I mean? I do. Instead, is is there a way of of getting to understand the pain they're in and why they would want to pull that trigger? Um. So so as to create an intervention the way Caroline described?
2: I think there is. I think the kind of intervention that Caroline's enacting also reduces shame, and I think there is a kind of shame that surrounds the impulse to take one's own life, whereas I break my leg... You know, I have the devastating cancer. Our society accepts that and accepts you. But the impulse toward taking one's life creates a real fear in those around us. We don't want to go there. It triggers all kinds of things in ourselves as we listen to it. Caroline's also trying just to reduce the shame that surrounds it. And I think you're really asking, how do we get to that point of understanding we get to that point of understanding by really listening and again, that sounds so well simple, let, but it's hard to do let me let me uh bring
4: it into the uh into the present moment um here we are struggling to come out of this uh pandemic that we've been dealing with for the last couple of years. It's still not, you know, we we really still can't declare an all clear. And there is this sense that a lot more people have mental health issues as a result of this anxiety that people have been feeling for the last couple of years, so a lot more people um, are are dealing with mental health issues than were before. Do we know any more than we did just because there's more attention being paid, or are we just as lost as
2: we ever were? I I'd, I'd say no, but I wouldn't use the word lost. So no, I don't think enough. <laughs> In a brain sense, we know no more than two years ago. I mean, that's what these scientists really taught me. And they're fascinating. I mean, they're taking me into the sub-regions of the hippocampus and how the hippocampus affects, you know, the realities that we perceive, et cetera, et cetera. Just amazing times with these researchers. No, we don't know more. But no, we're not lost. You know I just had a reader accuse me of being overly optimistic. (laughs) I'm not necessarily an overly optimistic person. In fact, in the middle of my book, uh, I talk a little bit about moments when I've felt those suicidal impulses. So I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna here, but I do think we're starting to know what can counter that. I mean, let's go back to a parent and a child, a teenager, talking about taking his or her own life or their own life, um, the parent is going to want to just rush in and grip on and hold. And I know this firsthand because I saw it with my parents and my brother. It's not always going to work. Let go just a little bit and just listen. It'll be so hard because you're a parent of this child in pain. But I can guarantee you it can't hurt. And it's probably going to help because that child is just going to feel like, okay, what I am feeling is not so unique, not so shameful, and not so disconnecting. I I have a place in this world. That's what you want that child to feel, and that's what will let that child go forward.
4: Is there any evidence any any studies that have been done that show where um the the right kind of parenting or the right kind of of intervention um can can mitigate mental health problems or or turn people away from the dark side for lack of a better better way to put it?
2: Right. And what's interesting to me, there are so many, but so many scattered studies. And ultimately, particularly in this area where, as you can imagine, it's hard to do a controlled experiment on suicide intervention. Um, you can't withhold intervention as a comparative part of the study. There aren't great scientific answers. And, and one of the points of the book is just a call for humility, which, again, I was drawing from really great lifelong scientists who are just take, saying it's time for, well, as one scientist put it, epistemological humility. That is, the acknowledgement that we don't know, that we are trying to help in an area where our knowledge is very limited, and that's okay. That may free us up to really see, interact with, engage with, listen to individual people. As another scientist put it, beginning of my career in the 1980s, thought we'd have this all figured out, thought it would be just a little bit harder than cancer, which we were also going to figure out, and as he said, this is this makes cancer seem. So so dumbass simple. We're wonderful creatures. We are amazing, mysterious creatures. We may need to embrace a little bit of that mystery as we go forward.
4: The name of the book is The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches by journalist Daniel Bergner. Um, Daniel... What's next for you?
2: You know, more, the way it works for me is more long magazine stories, and then I will find my way into my next book. The books are my passion, so I can't wait it, to be immersed in another. Is it a
4: magazine story where you start to get toward what you think is going to be the end, and, and you say to yourself, but wait, there's more, and it just grows into a book? <laughs>
2: It, yes, and that's what happened here. I mean, I started visiting Caroline's movement. I went to Israel, actually, to look at another kind of alternate approach to uh, psychiatric health. One thing led to another, and in addition to my brother's story, it all began to come together as a book.
4: Well, it's it's a, uh, a fascinating and important uh, story, Daniel, and I appreciate you spending... Uh, uh, your time and and uh, sharing some of the uh, thoughts from the book with me and the listeners this morning and i can't believe how fast the time has gone however i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past present and and future um, daniel do you have a website you'd like to share
2: i do it's just straightforward danielbergner.com but the most important thing to me is to connect with readers through this book, The Mind and the Moon.
4: Well, Daniel, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you. All right, take care. Again, that was um, journalist uh, Daniel Bergner. He is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, among uh, many other publications, uh, Mother Jones, uh, Harper's Magazine, the New York Times Book Review. Um, he's written a number of award-winning nonfiction books. The new book is The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story: The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches by uh, journalist Daniel Bergner. And with that, we'll have more of the time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: With me,
3: you might just say a lie,
1: or two, or three, or four, or
3: maybe five. Let's say lives. lie.
1: Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine
6: is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and
0: community-supported.
7: Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
5: Cloth or disposable, paint
6: or wallpaper, yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet, rocker or glider. So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show! Mom, Dad, we gotta get gas. You're not here, you're not! This place is charging
3: an arm and a leg!
6: Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual, but when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time, but when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them.
2: Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit
6: next to us. Nark. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away! We're at a gas station! What? <laughs>
4: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
6: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
5: All right, and now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of (laughs) times. But he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. (laughs) My grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. (laughs) He was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which, unfortunately, was stolen from him. (laughs) He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a So was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant, <sniffs> he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease the know. <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. He was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he, uh, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible, <laughs> but it sure held a lot of gravy. <laughs> I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called four up. (laughs) But it it wasn't successful at all. So he invented five up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came six up, but still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But Little did he know how close he came. (laughs) Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. So I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. One day, when I was four years old, my father came home and he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here and my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see my father was left-handed, he always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger, he didn't know my first name. (laughs) See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here in the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. (laughs) You know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. (laughs) Male, female, and convertible. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer, but I ain't going. Once I made up my mind what I was going to be and that's the way it's going to be. (laughs) What I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. (laughs) How could he be? He died when he was 29. (laughs) But what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. And he got her.
1: This was
0: another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Take good care of you. Let it take good care. Done. And your tired mind says that the race is run. Your feet will tell you something that you know deep down is true. Oh yeah. When you put on that old record, blues will take good care of you. Hey, hey let the blues take good care of you. No matter what it is, y'all, just do your thing. Let the blues, let the blues take good care of you. Hey, hey.
4: touch that dial, you're listening to Tom Sumner. The Tom Sumner